So um, some of you know, because we've been asking for prayer about this, uh, my father is visiting with us this week. He'll be here in the second service, and um, it, it's been really good just to be with him, picking him up at the airport, and then spending some time with him, uh, because he lives in Michigan, and uh, he's, well, tomorrow he's celebrating his 84th birthday. So yeah, good for him, right? <laughs> um, when I was, I was thinking about this because my dad's here. When I was a kid, and some of you will relate to this. When I was a kid, I was positive that my dad knew everything. Everything. I was positive when I was a kid that my dad could do everything. That there was nothing he didn't know, that there was nothing he couldn't do. Now, of course, I didn't stay that way. I became a teenager. And when I became a teenager, I became keenly aware that my father knew nothing. And I knew everything. And once I realized that I knew everything and my father knew nothing, it really changed the way that I approached him and the way I thought about him, right? Because everything he said made no sense to me and everything that I wanted to do, he didn't want me to do and all that kind of stuff. Because as a teenager, you know everything and your parents know nothing, right? And as I became an adult and started to raise my own family, I realized, you know what? My dad is pretty bright after all. <laughs> my dad has some wisdom. My dad knew some stuff. And I, I kind of got to this place where I had a, a, a really great respect for him and just for who he is and for what he's done and how much he knows and the way that he's lived his life and all that kind of stuff. Um, and I was thinking about that and it occurred to me that when I was a kid, even when I thought he knew everything, even when I thought he was right about everything, there were still things that I did not obey him in, right? Even when I knew that he knew more than me, I didn't always agree with him about stuff. Like he was under this ridiculous idea that kids should go to bed at a decent hour, which I thought was absurd. Like, if I don't want to go to bed, why should I go to bed, right? But my dad had this crazy idea that kids should go to bed at a certain time. Now that I have become a parent and had small children of my own in the house, I realize it doesn't matter if the children need sleep. The parents need a break. And that's why children have to go to bed, right? I'm like sending my kids to bed at 4.30. I'm like, we'll have dinner tomorrow. Off to bed. Here you go. And, but my dad had these ideas that even though they were right, and even though I was sure he knew everything, I still had trouble obeying him. It's an interesting thing, isn't it? And I was thinking also this week about my dad, because he's here, and, um, and I was remembering uh, this family vacation that we took. I think I was 11 years old. Now, uh, some of you know this, if you've heard me share my testimony or, or, or talk about this before. Um, when I was growing up, my mother was an alcoholic, and so she had a really, really, really serious alcohol problem, and she drank every day to the point of passing out, and that's what I grew up with, and that's all that I knew, and that's how my mom was. So I would get up in the morning, and there on the counter would be my mother's ice water, which you were not allowed to take sips out of, and it was a tall glass of about this much vodka and about this much water. 
And that was my mom's ice water, and it started about 8 o'clock in the morning, and it went on throughout the day until she was no longer coherent, and then she went to bed early, and that was the end of her day. And that's what I knew, and that's what I grew up with, and I didn't really question it much as a kid. It was just what I understood. It was just how it was. Well, we went on this vacation. We didn't do a lot of family vacations. In fact, this was the first family vacation we ever did in, in my childhood. I was 11 years old, and we were going to visit relatives in Oregon, and we took a, a road trip in the car. And so we're driving up 101 so that we would get a chance to see the beautiful coast and all of that kind of stuff, and we're just driving along. And we get to that area, I don't know, is it is like Carmel, Big Sur, that area up there where you're right along the cliffs, and you can look over and you see the ocean and everything. Now, you have to picture this, right? So my dad is driving. My brother and I, who hate each other, are in the back seat. And my mother is in the front seat, and she hasn't had a drink all day. Now, this is a big deal to her to not have had a drink all day. And she's riding in the car, and she's shaking, and she's uncomfortable, and she's not having a real great day because she's dependent upon alcohol, right? So she's sitting there. To add to that, let me just put it kindly. My dad's a crazy man behind the wheel. That's as gently as I could say that, okay? So um, we're driving up 101, and my dad has got like one hand on the wheel, and he's looking out the window going, wow, look at that view. And, and like, you know, motorhomes are coming at us and honking their air horns, and we're swerving, and we're doing this whole thing. This is the only time in my life I ever held my brother's hand. <laughs> we sat in the back seat gripping each other's hands and trying to stay quiet, and I think our prayer life began on that day. We're holding hands and praying. My dad's looking out the window and pointing out the beauty, and my mother is weeping to the point where tears are squirting out of her eyes and getting the windshield wet. She is absolutely terrified, and she's screaming at my dad, watch the road, watch the road, right? You've all been in these situations. She's screaming at my dad, watch the road, and my dad is screaming back at her, I've been driving for 50 years, and I know perfectly well how, you know that, that exchange? Some of you had that exchange on the way here, maybe. I don't know, but, but they're having this exchange, and my poor mom is about to have a heart attack, and my brother and I are praying in the back seat, and my dad is just mad that nobody's enjoying the scenery. I still have no idea what it looks like there, because I wasn't watching. I was just praying that I wouldn't get hit, and I've had that experience also every time I've been in a foreign country, and I've been in a bunch of them. And what I find is that if you think driving in California is a little bit crazy, you should try driving in, I don't know, El Salvador. Or, or maybe try driving, say, in Uganda. It, it's insane, like, because their, their mental models about driving and the way they go about it are just totally different than ours, right? They're used to doing it a certain way. And the certain way that they're used to doing it, if you have heart trouble, don't do this. And we're sitting, uh, I, I'm in... Uganda, for the first time I remember this, and we have this like three or four hour drive to get from the airport to where we're going, and uh, it's, it's just at dusk, and now it's getting dark, and so you're seeing headlights in the road, and we're going up this road, and, and the lines are just suggestions on these roads, and you sort of go where you need to go to get around the vehicles you need to get around, and you're going at quite a speed, and you'll be in this side of the road, and the car's coming right at you, and then they just swerve at the last second and get around it, and they're completely peaceful about this. And we're freaking out in the back of the van going, oh my gosh, we flew 10,000 miles to die in Uganda. 
And we had a discussion, and we determined that if we die on the road in Uganda, we get credit as martyrs. <laughs> right? Because we're on a mission trip. If you die there, you can't, it counts as martyrdom. That was our deal. So we, that was the only way we got through it, or we would have freaked out. Um, my point is this. Most of us know what it's like to be in the passenger seat or the back seat when somebody is driving, and you don't like the way they're driving, right? You know, as you're going up, up or down mountain roads and you're in the passenger seat, why is it that when you're in the passenger seat, it always feels like you're coming into the curves too fast? But when you're in the driver's seat, you know exactly how fast you can come into the curves, right? So the person in the passenger seat is generally not enjoying the ride. And it is harder to be in the passenger seat, isn't it? It is scarier to be in the passenger seat. <laughs> right? <laughs> I love the look on that dog's face. The dog's going, who gave this woman a license, right? This dog is thinking, I have a license. It's hanging on my collar. Let me drive, right? But when you're in the passenger seat, it's difficult. And, and I think the main reason for that, frankly, is that we just prefer, don't we, to be in control. <laughs> Especially when our lives are on the line. We just prefer to be in control. We'd love to be in control. And that is one of the problems that we have with this calling of Jesus to come to him. When Jesus says, come to me and come with me, we have this natural reaction that says, okay, that sounds good, kind of. I really like this idea of rest and an easy yoke and a light burden, and I like all of that, but I'm not so keen on this idea that he's going to be the one making all the decisions. He's going to be the one guiding me, and I'm going to have to just do what he wants. So we love the idea that Jesus wants to save us and set us free from our sin and give us a ticket to heaven. That's an easy sell. When you say that this is one of the reasons why it's so common and so difficult in children's ministry to really know when children are coming into a saving relationship with Jesus. Because when we say to children, we simplify the gospel as we say, you know, um, heaven is this wonderful place and you get to be there forever and grandma is there and it's going to be wonderful and Jesus gave us a way to do this. Who would like to go to heaven? And all the hands go up, right? Well, of course everyone wants to go to heaven. It's easy to get converts if the only message is who would like to go to heaven. That's an easy sell. But the problem is that's not nearly all the story, right, as we've been talking about. Jesus calls us to walk with him, and when he calls us to walk with him, that means that there's going to be some things that are going to happen in our lives that we are no longer going to be in control of. That Jesus doesn't come to us and say, I want to be your savior, and then you get to be in charge of your life. He comes and says, I am the Lord. And Lord means boss. And when he becomes the boss, that's a different story altogether. And it means that we lose a certain amount of control. But people often have this idea of God where we think of God as some sort of a cosmic vending machine where he's just sort of sitting in the corner until we get hungry. And then we go over and we look at the menu and decide what we want. And then the vending machine serves us what we ask for. And we have this idea that somehow that's how God's going to be for us. 
that he can just sit aside and wait for us. And when we get an interest in something, we go to him and say, I'd like to have this. And it's his job to give it to us. And we're in control and we get to be the boss. And we have this idea of God as a cosmic vending machine. The problem with a God like that is that he's not really God, right? A God who simply answers to us. A God who simply does what we ask him to do. A God who... who of whom we are in charge, is not actually God. And if we're going to worship the actual God, we're going to have to do it with Him as Lord. When God calls us to Himself, it's not like He gives us this account and an ATM card and a PIN number and says, just come and let me know and the, the machine will just spit out what you want. I have a news flash for you. God has a plan in mind. God has a plan in mind. God has this big picture in mind. And, and what we have often heard said is God has a wonderful plan for your life, right? Is that true? God does have a wonderful plan for your life. But, but that, gets the, that gets the emphasis in the wrong spot, I think. What I think we ought to be saying is God has a wonderful plan, and your life is part of that as opposed to the idea that somehow God has this plan for me and then everything he's doing revolves around me and that plan that he has for me. We've got to realize the universe does not revolve around you or me, right? It's all about him. So when we say that God has a plan, what we're saying is that God is doing things according to his will and that he is bringing about a plan that is bigger than any plan that we understand. And too often, people are content to know that God exists, but then they go on with their lives as though they belong to themselves. And if you're going to go with God, you're going to have to understand one thing. He insists on driving. He doesn't ride in anybody's passenger seat. He insists on driving, and that means there's going to be some scary moments. That means there's going to be some things going on that you don't understand where he's going to be in full control and it's going to feel out of control to you and me. But God insists on driving. That's the only way he's going. Going with God means that he gets to be in charge and that we don't get to set boundaries on his involvement in our lives, which is exactly what we would love to do, right? We say, Lord, I want you involved in my life here and here and here and not, no, not there, but here and here so you can do these five things, but this thing, don't, you're not allowed there. We want to we create the boundaries where God is involved and we want to create the boundaries of his involvement. We want to say, you can be involved up to this point, but, but only to the point where you're sort of coming along with my plan, not to the point where you say, I have a plan and I'm not even going to tell you everything about what it is and I expect you to come with me. But God doesn't play that game. And so it's hard, right? Because so often, we just frankly don't understand what God is up to. The things that God is doing don't make a lot of sense to us. So today I'm going to introduce you to three men in particular. One of them is a great and mighty, victorious, powerful, wealthy man who does not understand who God is or how much he needs him. The second man in this scenario is a man who is a great prophet of God, 
He knows God very well, and he walks by faith. And because he walks by faith, he experiences the power of God in amazing ways on a regular basis in his life. The third man is a man who ought to know God better than he actually does. He's had multiple opportunities to see who God is, to understand God's word, to watch God work, but he sees God work and it doesn't quite fit into the way that he thinks about life, and so he has trouble following God. Even though he knows who God is, he has trouble giving God all of his trust. So I want you to take your Bibles, go to the Old Testament, to the book of 2 Kings. So you come to 1st and 2nd Samuel, then you come to 1st and 2nd Kings. And I want you to go to 2nd Kings chapter 5. And we're going to meet these men here in 2nd Kings chapter 5 and 6. And I want you to hear their story and watch the way it works with God. 2nd Kings chapter 5, verse 1. Now Naaman, captain of the army of the king of Aram, was a great man with his master, highly respected, because by him the Lord had given victory to Aram, which is a fascinating statement. Right off the bat, we're meeting this guy who is Aramean, right? He is not a Jew. He is not an Israelite. He is Aramean. And the Arameans are among those uh, tribes of people with whom the Israelites consistently have problems. And yet it says here, that this man, Nahum, a captain in the army of the Arameans, had experienced great military success. Does it say because he was such a great leader? It says because God had given him success. God had given success to the Arameans. And he had done it through this guy, Naaman, who didn't even know him. And it says, continuing at the end of verse 5, it says... The man was also a valiant warrior. And so we have this picture of him that he is highly respected. He's victorious. He's a valiant warrior. And then comes the but. But he was a leper. Now this story is going along just great for Naaman until we get to that but. He is victorious, he is wealthy, he is respected, he is powerful, he is honored, he has a great position of authority, but there's just this one little thing, just this one little flaw, he happens to be a leper. That's a pretty big problem. As you know, leprosy in those days was the most debilitating of all diseases, it was the most terrible of all diseases. It was a disease that destroyed you gradually throughout your days, and it also made you an outcast from society. If you became a leper, you were no longer able to continue in your job. You were no longer able to continue with your family. You were no longer able to even live among your people. You literally became an outcast, and you had to live in the wilderness because the disease was so contagious, and everybody was afraid that they would get it, and so lepers became outcasts. So we have this guy, and he is like second in command to the king, and he's had all this great victory, and he's the most respected man in the whole kingdom, and yet he contracts leprosy. And that becomes a huge problem. Verse 2. Now the Arameans had gone out in bands and had taken captive a little girl from the land of Israel, and she waited on Naaman's wife. So sometime back in the past, during one of their raids, they took some slaves, 
And one of those slaves was a little girl, and this little girl had grown up now in Naaman's wife, at Naaman's house as a servant to his wife. And she said to her mistress, verse 3, I wish that my master were with the prophet who is in Samaria. Then he would cure him of his leprosy. Naaman went in and told his master, saying, Thus and thus spoke the girl who is from the land of Israel. Then the king of Aram said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. He departed and took with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothes. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, saying, And now as this letter comes to you, behold, I have sent Naaman my servant to you, that you may cure him of his leprosy. Then the king of Israel read the letter. He tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and make alive, that this man is sending word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? But consider now and see how he is seeking a quarrel with me. So he gets this letter and he says, obviously, this is a trap. He knows I can't cure someone of leprosy. Only God can do that. And he sends him to me and says, I want you to cure him of his leprosy. Obviously, he's looking for a fight so that when I can't cure him of his leprosy and I send him back uncured, he's going to have a reason to attack us. And so he's saying, the king of Aram is picking a fight with me. Verse 8. It happened when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, that he sent word to the king saying, why have you torn your clothes? Now let him come to me, and he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and his chariots and stood at the doorway of the house of Elisha. Elisha sent a messenger to him saying, go and wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh will be restored to you and you will be clean. Okay, picture this. This is a visiting dignitary. This is something like if we sent the Secretary of State to another country. When you send the Secretary of State to another country, there is a ceremony on the tarmac when the plane, le when the plane lands, right? All of the other dignitaries come out to meet them. The press covers it. There's a state dinner. There's a celebration before any meetings ever begin to happen, right? So he's thinking, I'm going to come into town and I have this whole entourage with me, multiple chariots that are riding into Samaria here where, the, where this prophet is supposed to be. And I'm going to this little hamlet here where this prophet is staying and I'm going to come up with all of my wealth and all the gifts that I'm planning to give and all of my state letters and I'm going to come and they're going to receive me and then hopefully I'm going to get healed of this leprosy. And he shows up and he knocks on the door and the prophet cannot even be bothered to come to the door. He sends his servant. And the servant answers the door and says, yes, what would you like? And he says, well, I'm Naaman and I have this letter from the king and I'm supposed to be uh, cured of leprosy and I'm here to see the prophet. And he says, yeah, the prophet knows all that. He told me what to tell you. He said, go to the Jordan and I want you to get in it and then get out. And then get in it and then get out. And when you've done that seven times, you'll be cured of your leprosy. And he closed the door. Now imagine how you would feel. You come all this distance. You're used to being treated with this great respect. You're this great man. And you're in terrible need. And you come and basically you get blown off. Now these are countries that have been at war off and on. So they have strained relationships. And this is all beginning to feel like politics to Naaman. And he's caught up in the middle of it. And verse... Uh, 11 says, but Naaman was furious and went away and said, behold, I thought he will surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. 
Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. In other words, this prophet didn't even have the decency to speak to me himself. He sends his servant, and his servant tells me to do something absolutely stupid. Makes no sense whatsoever that I'm going to go get in the filthy Jordan River and that getting in and out of the Jordan River seven times is somehow going to make me clean. There are clean waters in Damascus where I'm from. I could have bathed there if bathing was all it took. Obviously, that's not going to help me. And he takes off angry. And in other words, he's essentially saying this means war. And he takes off in a rage. Then his servants came near and spoke to him and said, my father... Had the prophet told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more then when he says to you, wash and be clean? In other words, what if he had told you to pay $10,000, do 100 push-ups, and spend a month in prayer, and then you'll be cleansed? You would have done that, because it would have seemed like a, like a spiritual thing to do. But he's asking you to do this simple thing, and you're not willing to do it. Verse 14, so he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, According to the word of the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. He had this need. His need was so great that there was no way for it to be met by his own strength. God gave him something to do that made no sense whatsoever, which, by the way, is exactly what God does all the time. Calls us to do things that make no sense to us whatsoever. And when he got over himself, and when he quit his complaining, and when he quit his explaining, and when he quit his griping, and he actually just said, okay, why not? And he tried following what God told him to do. He was cleansed, he was healed, he was made whole. It's an amazing thing that he experienced. Doesn't it make you wonder... When you see something like this, how many times in your life you have missed out on God doing something amazing in your life because, frankly, you just weren't willing to take him at his word and obey what he was asking you to do? How many times you, you read something in the word of God and you go, wow, I mean, that's a really high standard. That's probably not really for me. You know, and or, or maybe... I'm different because my circumstances are this and my circumstances wouldn't require that kind of obedience to God. Or maybe it's just my own pride that gets in the way and I go, I know I'm supposed to respond to God. I know I'm supposed to bow my knee and pray and receive Christ by grace, but I've always had this idea that I could do it, that I could work my way into it, that I could do it my way and still get to heaven. And I just resist it. I wonder how many things I have missed where God would have done the miraculous right before my eyes if I had just been willing to trust him even when I didn't understand. So Naaman, the great and mighty warrior, became Naaman the leper in a moment. And in a moment, he became Naaman the cleansed because he was willing to trust God. But the story doesn't end there. I want you to meet the second guy. His name is Gehazi. We find him beginning in verse 15 here. 
It says, when he returned to the man of God with all his company and came and stood before him, he said, behold now, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel, so please take a present from your servant now. But he said, as the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will take nothing. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. Naaman said, if not, please let your servant at least be given two mules load of earth for your servant will no longer offer burnt offerings, nor will he sacrifice to other gods, but to the Lord. In this matter, may the Lord pardon your servant when my master goes into the house of Rimon to worship there, and he leans on my hand, and I bow myself in the house of Rimon. When I bow myself in the house of Rimon, the Lord pardon your servant in this matter. In other words, I am no longer going to worship these false gods of my land. I am only going to worship the one true God from this day forward, but I need you to know that I still serve the king, and the king is going to want me to go with him into this pagan temple. And when I go into this pagan temple, I want you to know I am not worshiping that pagan God, but please forgive me for even going into the temple at all. And then it goes on, and it says in verse 19, he said to him, go in peace. So he departed from him some distance. He wanted to give him those 6,000 shekels of gold. He wanted to give him those, that pile of silver and the changes of clothes. That was all the way wealth was represented in those days. He wanted to give him all those things, but he would not accept it. And his servant Gehazi is overhearing this, and Gehazi gets an idea. Verse 20, but Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, thought, behold, my master has spared this name in the Aramean by not receiving from his hands what he brought. As the Lord lives, I will run after him and take something from him. So Gehazi pursued Naaman. When Naaman saw, Naaman saw someone running after him, he came down from the chariot to meet him and said, Is all well? He said, All is well. My master has sent me, saying, Behold, just now two young men of the sons of the prophets have come from the hill country of Ephraim. Please give them a talent of silver and two changes of clothes. Naaman said, Be pleased to take two talents. And he urged him and bound two talents of silver and two bags with two changes of clothes and gave them to two of his servants, and they carried them before him. And when he came to the hill, he took them from their hand and deposited them in the house, and he sent the men away, and they departed. But he went in and stood before his master. He decided that what God had led the prophet to do made no sense to him. Here's a pagan man who brings all this wealth. Why shouldn't we have it here? These guys are probably living on very little food. They have this sort of school of the prophets where these prophets come, these young prophets, to be trained and to be discipled and to be taught. And they're probably feeding them soup and they probably have very little. And he's thinking, why in the world when God sends us money, would we say no to that? I mean, we're having car washes and bake sales and all this kind of stuff so we can make money. This guy comes and says, here's some money, and he says no. And so in his wisdom, in his great wisdom, he says, I'm going to go after him, make up a story, and get some of that money. And then he keeps it for himself. Now, where are we at? Verse um, 25. But he went in and stood before his master, and Elisha said to him, where have you been, Gehazi? And he said, your servant went nowhere. Oh, here's a, um, a quick tip. Don't lie to prophets. <laughs> just, just passing that on. Then he said to him, did not my heart go with you when the man turned from his chariot to meet you? Is it time to receive money and receive clothes and olive groves and vineyards and sheep and oxen and male and female servants? Therefore, the leprosy of Naaman shall cling to you and to your descendants forever. So he went out from his presence, a leper as white as snow. Whew. 
So, so we have Naaman, the great man, who becomes Naaman the leper, who becomes Naaman the clean, the clean. And now we have Gehazi, the man of God, who becomes Gehazi the leper. And what do they have in common? They each had the opportunity to trust God. One of them didn't trust God at first, but then he turned and obeyed. The other one trusted God at first, but then turned away and went after his own plan. And the leprosy went from the one to the other. You might just write in your margin, oops. That's a big mistake. And, and now he and his descendants are going to be leprous. But his story doesn't end there. Because it wasn't just this story of his greed that illustrates just his spiritual blindness. You have to understand something about this man. First of all, he had been, he had been the servant to Elisha for some time. You, you may remember if you've read First and Second Kings that, that there was a, pro, a great prophet by the name of Elijah. And Elijah had a servant named Elisha. And Elisha, the servant of Elijah, became the prophet of Israel when Elijah went to heaven. And so this is a prophet's training program, if you will. It's a discipleship program. And now Gehazi is the disciple of Elisha. And God has amazing plans for Gehazi's life. But what happens? He gets derailed by his greed and he's unwilling to trust God. Don't get confused. This is not a story of what greed can do to you. It's a story of what lack of faith can do to you. And believing that you have to accomplish something for God. He's spiritually blind. Now the story goes on. Pick it up in chapter 6, verse 8. Now the king of Aram was warring against Israel. And he counseled with his servants, saying, In such and such a place shall be my camp. The man of God sent word to the king of Israel, saying, uh, Beware that you do not pass this place, for the Arameans are coming down there. In other words, the prophet knew exactly what the Arameans were doing, and he would tell the king so the king would um, flourish in battle. Verse 10, The king of Israel sent to, uh, to the place about which the man of God had told him. Thus he warned him, so that he guarded himself there more than once or twice. Now, the heart of the king of Aram was enraged over this thing, and he called his servants and said to them, will you tell me which of us is for the king of Israel? In other words, there's obviously a leak here. Somebody is putting the word out. But that's not what was happening at all. Verse 12, one of his servants said, no, my lord, O king, but Elisha the prophet who is in Israel tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. So he said, go and see where he is that I may send down and take him. And it was told him, saying, Behold, he is in Dothan. He sent horses and chariots and a great army there, and they came by night and surrounded the city. So he's in this little town called Dothan, and he sends a whole army to get one prophet because he's heard about what this God can do. And so he sends a whole army to get one prophet. Verse 15, Now when the attendant of the man, who's that? Gehazi, right? The servant of Elisha. When the attendant of the man of God had risen early and gone out, so they're sleeping, it gets to be the crack of dawn. Gehazi gets up, goes out to get the morning paper and start the coffee, and he looks out and he sees something. He sees that they're surrounded by a huge army, right? When the attendant of the man of God had risen early and gone out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was circling the city, and his servant said to him, Alas, my master, what shall we do? So he answered, 
Do not fear, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And at that point, I think Gehazi must have looked around and he said, okay, let's count our guys. One, two, two. I just looked out there, the whole city is surrounded by a great army and they're heavily armed and they're coming after us. What in the world do you mean when you say there are more with us than there are against us? Verse 17, then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened the servant's eyes and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. So there was a circle of angels that had encircled Elisha to protect him from this army. And Gehazi had no idea until Elisha prayed that his eyes would be open, and then his blindness changed and he could see into the spiritual realm and see what was going on. And then uh, when they came to him, Elisha prayed to the Lord, strike this people with blindness, I pray. So he struck them with blindness, according to the word of Elisha. Then Elisha said to them, this is not the way, nor is this the city. Follow me, and I will bring you to the man whom you seek. And he brought them to Samaria. So they're blind, and he goes, hey, not sure what happened with the blindness, but follow me. I can see. I'll take you to where you need to go. And he brings them right into their fortified camp, right to where the king is, right? Verse 20, when they had come into Samaria, Elisha said, O Lord, open the eyes of these men that they may see. So the Lord opened their eyes and they saw, and behold, they were in the midst of Samaria. Then the king of Israel, when he saw them, said to Elisha, my father, shall I kill them? Shall I kill them? And he answered, you shall not kill them. Would you kill those you have taken captive with your sword and with your bow? Set bread and water before them that they may eat and drink and go to their master. So he prepared a great feast for them. And when they had eaten and drunk, he sent them away and they went to their master. And the marauding bands of Arameans did not come again into the land of Israel. The king, when he sees this great capture, he says, let's kill him. And Elisha says, don't kill him. Let's have a feast for them, which is, of course, standard military protocol. Let's have a feast for them. Let's throw a party in their honor. Let's treat them with honor and respect. And they have this huge feast. And then the king's thinking, well, should I kill them now, now that they've eaten? Can I kill them now? Can I kill them now? Huh, huh, huh. And he says, no, send them to their master. And the king says, okay. And off they go. It's back to Aram. And the interesting part is the last part where it says, and that's when they stopped invading Israel. Never again was there an Aramean attack on Israel. It's an amazing thing that God does. God has a picture in mind that is greater than the picture that you're used to seeing. So I ask you this. In your life, what are you seeing? Are you seeing this God who has everything under control and you're willing to say, yes, I'll walk with him? Or are you seeing just the circumstances before you without any understanding of this big picture of what God might be doing? See, if you're willing to trust God, if you're willing to walk in obedience with Him, your life will be explainable only by the power of God. There's no way to understand Elisha except for the power of God. 
and your life will be explainable only by the power of God. If you are willing to say, as I go with you, Lord, I will truly go with you. Where you lead, I will follow. What you say, I will do. And when you experience that kind of obedience, you're going to experience a God who will change the world through you. And no one will be able to explain it except to say, what a mighty God you serve.